Good morning, Trinity Church. Lovely to be with you. And um, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10 again this morning. And I'm going to read our passage and then I'll pray for us as we take a little look at it. So please do have a look at it in your Bibles. It's chapter 10, verses 32 to 52. And this is what it says. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to him, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Uh, Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Let's ask for God's help as we look at that passage together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Mark's gospel and for all that we have learned about the Lord Jesus. And we thank you for the ways in which you have opened our eyes to know you and to know your love for us. And we pray this morning that you would do a similar work in us. Please would you help us to understand what is meant by these verses. Help us to understand um, what a relationship with the Lord Jesus looks like. And we pray this in his name. Amen. I'm going to start with a question this morning. And here it is. 
What do you want Jesus to do for you? Give it a moment. Give it some thought. Now that you're a Christian, following him, what is it that you want Jesus to do for you? Or perhaps you're not a Christian this morning. It's great to have you with us. We're so glad you're tuning in. But perhaps you're not sure about becoming a follower of his. If you could get him in a room this morning, what is it you would want him to do for you? Perhaps you don't like the sound of that question. Uh, Perhaps you're thinking, well, it sounds too presumptuous. It sounds disrespectful. I mean, Jesus is God's king. That's what we've been learning about him in Mark's gospel. So I'm not about to tell him uh, what I want him to be doing for me. And yet, as Jesus came into the world, he, um, he came to do something for us, for you and for me. And amazingly, that very question is one that he asks of people, people on the road as he's walking. He asks it twice in our passage this morning. What do you want me to do for you? And it turns out to be a pretty good diagnostic question for us this morning, um, a good litmus test for what we think it should be like to follow him. See, what are our expectations of what Jesus will do for us as we become his disciples? But as we work our way through this passage, it quickly becomes evident that Jesus is not a genie in a bottle, you know, offering us um, a few wishes and, you know, your wish is my command. No. He is God's king, who knows a good answer from a bad one. And so there will be requests that he is happy to grant and requests that he will turn down. And we see both of those in Mark chapter 10 this morning. Ironically, it is the disciples who are getting discipleship wrong this morning. And we'll see Jesus setting them straight on that. But there is one person who seems to get it really right. He's ahead of the curve when it comes to following Jesus, and we're going to learn quite a lot from him this morning. But we will need to tread carefully, because there may be things here that surprise us, and which we find uncomfortable. Certainly that has been the case. We've seen that to be the case over the last few weeks in this section of Mark. Some of our ideas of what it means to follow Jesus are starting to be, or may even this morning be, dismantled by him. And that's never a comfortable process. And so before we hear anyone else speaking in this passage this morning, uh, Mark wants us to take another good, hard look at Jesus. Uh, Before we hear again what it means to follow him, Mark wants us to see what kind of a leader he is. And so in verses 32 to 34, he shows us a king who is leading the way into suffering and death. Jesus and his disciples have been on the road for quite a while now. Up until now, they've mainly been moving around Galilee. Uh, It's not until verse 32 of chapter 10 that we hear they are on their way up to Jerusalem. Already there is astonishment and fear in this crowd, no doubt because of the things that the difficult things that Jesus has been saying to them. Now he pulls the twelve aside one more time to tell them what is coming. 
Have a look from verse 33. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. It's the, the third time that he has given them this kind of forecast. But here we are given more and more of the, the grim details. Jerusalem is unveiled as the place that, where it will all go down. And we get a fresh sense in this passage of the complete collusion that he is going to come up against in Jerusalem. We've known about the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Now we hear that the Gentiles will be in on it as well. We're also reminded of the level of opposition that, is, that Jesus is going to face. The verbs in those verses say it all, don't they? He will be delivered over, condemned, mocked, spat on, flogged, killed. It will be a physically excruciating end to his life. But it will also be a degrading and utterly humiliating way to end life. All of which I would think is enough to turn the bravest heart around to flee uh, for his life. And yet Jesus isn't flinching here. We're told in verse 32 that he is leading the way to Jerusalem. He's not lagging behind. He's not dragging his heels. He doesn't need someone prodding him uh, to keep moving on the way. No, he is out front and he is pulling an astonished and fearful group behind him. It's not because he was eager to die. You hear some stories of martyrs, Christian and others, uh, who seem to relish their approaching death. But that wasn't Jesus. No, we'll see uh, him in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating drops of blood and asking his father if there's another way. He knows how horrific his death is going to be. Now, the reason he is resolutely leading the way to Jerusalem is because he knows the mission that he is on and he is faithful to it. He was faithful back in chapter 1. Remember, as the devil tried to lure him away from his mission. He, he is faithful in chapter 8 as Peter tried to steer him off course. And he is faithful now to the unique job that has, he has been given to do, a job that is promised all the way through the Old Testament. It's a job that his disciples need to be clear about if we are to understand what following him really means. And in the rest of the passage, we find one group of people who are not yet clear on it. But then we find one other person who seems to have a much better grasp on things. The disciples seem to think they have a one-way ticket to glory. But Jesus is going to teach them that following him will mean much more than that. In fact, it is going to mean other-centered, sacrificial service. Other-centered, sacrificial service. That's about the last thing that was on the minds of James and John as they come to Jesus in verse 35. They've got a request and it's a big one, and they know it, which is why they want him to agree to it before they even ask, right? In verse 35, they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. 
They replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. So they've definitely learned something from Jesus, these two. Uh, He is going to be enthroned in glory, but they seem to have brushed over some of the other lessons that Jesus has taught. And so Jesus does a bit of revision for them. In verse 38, he asks, Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with a baptism that I am baptized with? The cup is an Old Testament metaphor for something that God gives to you, allots to you. In this case, Jesus is asking, can you endure the suffering and the opposition that God has in store for me? And baptism is a similar image here. It is a deluge, an outpouring of suffering that Jesus is about to endure. Can you handle that, asks Jesus. To which they answer, just a little bit quickly perhaps, we can. And it's a sobering moment that follows as Jesus assures them that they will suffer and be opposed. But the request they're making is not his to grant. You see what we've got here from James and John? It is the ultimate shotgun call, isn't it? Um, It is a grab for the best seats in the house the seats that are closest to the throne of power, the seats that are closest to the limelight. That's where they, they want to be. And not just them. When the other ten find out what James and John have been up to, oh, they're indignant, annoyed, disgruntled, vexed. And why would they feel like that unless they also harbored similar ambitions for those same positions? But it's Jesus' response in verse 42 that helps us to know what's really gone down here. He calls the 12 together in for a little team huddle to teach them a fundamental lesson about following him. He says, you know uh, how the Gentile rulers operate. And I imagine they were all thinking about the Romans at this point. You know how they lorded over each other and exercise authority over each other. In other words, you know how leadership works in this world. People all gun for the top spots, don't they? They scheme, they plot, they outmaneuver each other to get those top spots. And once they are on top, they hold on to the comfort and the power that they have. And they use that comfort and power not only to their advantage, but to keep others down and out. That's how the world works. And you know, sitting here this morning, we know that nothing has changed in our world. Politicking and self-promotion is still the way of leadership in the world. Even when world leaders get together for a a photo op, there is jostling, um, as that was the case back in in 2017 um, at a NATO summit, all the leaders gathering together, and then they all sort of moved over for a, a group photo. And then the next thing you know, the American president, who shall remain nameless, sort of literally pushes one of the other prime ministers out the way. Uh, the prime minister of that, that mighty nation, Montenegro, um, and he pushes him out the way to get in front. And of course, the prime minister of Montenegro looks quite taken aback. But the White House spokesman afterwards said, no, the president wasn't trying to get a better position. He was just getting the place that was reserved for him. And the prime minister of Montenegro very graciously said, it is natural for the president of the United States to be in the first row. 
Jesus said, you know that is how the world works. And then in verse 43, he says four words to just change everything. Not so with you. In other words, that is not how the kingdom of God operates. And that is not how greatness in God's eternal kingdom is achieved. It is exactly what James and John have just been trying to do in the kingdom. And I wonder if they were starting to squirm here. Actually, we all need this lesson, don't we? The lesson of verses 43 and 44. Jesus said, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Now those would have been such controversial words uh, to hear in the first century. The word for servant <clears throat> is the word for someone who waits on tables. And a slave, of course, well, he was beneath the lowest rung on society's ladder. And they're really, they're no less controversial in our world today. Our natural inclination is always to climb up society's ladder, isn't it? We use our gifts and our resources and our charm and our cunning to gain recognition, even if it is just likes on social media. We want a higher place on the ladder. But Jesus says, do that if you want to follow the world. But if you want to follow me, you need to climb down the ladder. You take yourself off center stage, out of the limelight, and you put others there by looking for ways to serve them. Whoa, that idea is not just countercultural, it is counter instinctive, isn't it? Because our fallen hearts, yours and mine, are hardwired now to be self-centered. Selfish ambition just becomes our natural instinct in everything, doesn't it? But Jesus says when you come into the kingdom of God, you learn a new instinct, which is to be other-centered and servant-hearted. I saw a documentary a while ago about the American Secret Service it explained how when a human hears a gunshot, their involuntary response is to recoil. We can't help doing it. It happens in a nanosecond. It's automatic self-preservation. But the American president, well, he needs bodyguards who will automatically preserve him in a life and death situation. So part of the Secret Service training is to recondition those bodyguards to react differently in that split second. Instead of recoiling when a shot is fired, they learn to do the very opposite, to move their bodies out into the line of uh, fire to become a human shield for the president. Now that is radical, other-centered, sacrificial service, isn't it? And it's a great picture of the life that Jesus has called you and me to. And you may be thinking, well, th that sounds impossible. You know, how on earth am I ever going to do that? Well, the help that we need comes in Jesus' amazing words in verse 45. Look at them and see how he redirects our focus away from ourselves 
and onto his great act of service. He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's pointing us to himself. And in his act of service, we see two things to help us. The first is an amazing example to follow. If anyone had reason to sit back and let people run around him, it was the Son of Man, the King of Kings, God's Son. But even he didn't come into the world with that mindset. Uh, That's just not who he is. Amazingly, he came into the world as a servant, concerned with the needs of his followers, washing their feet, and then laying down his life for them. And so if we're ever unsure about the pattern of the Christian life, if ever we're looking around for a good example of how to live the Christian life, well, we only need to look to Jesus, to his servant-hearted life, to his other-centered life and death, and take our cue from him. Many Christians that have gone before us have done exactly that. And so we can look at them too as they follow Jesus. But of course, Jesus is the ultimate example, and his death is the climax of that example. But it wasn't just an example that Jesus came to set us. No, as we look at his death, what we see primarily is a saving act that needed to happen so that we could become disciples at all and then walk along his servant road. Jesus points us to a ransom that sets us free. Thanks to Liam Neeson, I think we all know what a ransom is these days. In Jesus' day, a slave or a captive of war might be set free through a substantial payment of money. That payment, says Jesus, is what he came to do for us. It wasn't money. In fact, the New Testament looks back at the cross and says, you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. See, the cross of Christ is not merely a good example for us to follow. It was also, and more so, an act of divine payment to set us free from the penalty and the power of sin. It cost God the life of his Son, It's one thing for a bodyguard to serve as president by putting his life on the line. But what we've got here, in fact, is the the roles are reversed. The president is pushing the bodyguard to the ground and taking the bullet for him. It is an astonishing act of sacrificial service that was done for you and for me because God loves us. And it is one that absolutely had to happen in order for us to be able to enter the kingdom of God, to become disciples of Jesus, and then to follow him on his servant road. But what does that all mean for you and me? Well, the first thing it means is that we have so much to be thankful to God for. Um, For coming into the world to die for us, for paying the price for our sin, for setting us free from a worldly obsession of always needing to put them put number one sorry to look after number one to put ourselves first and the second thing it means is that 
as we've become disciples, we have automatically become servants. Maybe that doesn't sound all that good to you. Maybe because it flies in the face of everything that your culture has taught you up until now. Perhaps your culture has taught you that there will come a time when, you know, perhaps when you've lived long enough or when you've earned enough money or when you've taken enough responsibility, you know, there comes a time when you graduate from being the servant. And you graduate to someone who is now served by others. Well, all it takes is one look at Jesus to see that we never graduate from service. In fact, when we became Christians, we graduated from being served. When I was at Bible college, the bishop used to take a group of students away every year uh, to, to our house just to hang out and get to know each other better. And after dinner the one year, everyone was relaxing and playing pool and foosball and having a good time. And then we went down into the kitchen only to find the bishop with his hands in the sink doing all of our dishes. And it was a humbling moment. And for some of the students, particularly from the other African countries, they were just really stunned to see this older man and a bishop doing this job. Why was he doing it? Well, the answer, of course, is that he was simply following the Lord Jesus. Maybe becoming a servant doesn't sound all that good to you because, well, we live in a world that is all about consuming. It's not about giving, it's about consuming. Maybe you've absorbed that mindset and you're bringing it to church with you. Maybe you're coming along to Trinity on Sundays and you're being waited on hand and foot, really, by all sorts of people, the welcome team, um, the guys who take your temperature, the coffee guys, the apprentices who set out your chairs, uh, the music team, the preacher. All sorts of people are, are serving you and you feel pretty comfortable. But you haven't yet thought about how you might serve others. Maybe it's time to come and chat to uh, Nigel or myself about taking some baby steps in that direction. Maybe becoming a servant doesn't sound all that good to you because quite simply it means moving out of your comfort zone. It means trying new things. It means trying things that you might not be very good at, you might fail at. It means trying, uh, it means recognizing new people that need serving, need speaking to. Well, what all of us need as we think about the subject of serving others is to take a fresh look at the Son of Man who had every reason to come and be served but who instead came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, for you and me. A good long hard look at him will remind us of what we have to be thankful for and it will move us towards service. Now we've spent most of our time uh, in verses 35 to 45, that's okay. We've seen that following Jesus is going to mean other-centered, sacrificial service, and that it will be fueled by this glorious truth that we were served first by the Son of Man, by the King of Kings. In the last little encounter this morning, we meet someone, a blind beggar, who really is ahead of the curve when it comes to discipleship. 
And he teaches us that following Jesus begins with a trusting plea for mercy. His name is Bartimaeus. He's sitting on the side of the road outside Jericho, and there's nothing wrong with his ears or his vocal cords. Because in verse 47, we're told, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, there are a few things that really stick out about Bartimaeus, uh, things that he gets so right. Firstly, he recognizes Jesus for who he is. Um, no one in Mark's gospel has called Jesus son of David yet, but of course that is exactly who he is, the long-awaited king of David's line. And Bartimaeus, well, he just won't stop calling him by that title. And don't miss what it is that he is calling out for. The disciples, they wanted glory from Jesus, but Bartimaeus pleads for mercy. Uh, which means, of course, that he's recognized something about himself too. He's recognized that he is in no position to, to demand glory or even to plead for justice or to stand on his human rights. No, when you plead for mercy you are acknowledging that you don't deserve anything. And so the only way to come at this is with humility, appealing to kindness and to compassion, which is what Bartimaeus does. He is a portrait of the right kind of approach to God. See, we have no claim on God. None of us do. We who, um, everything we have has, is already an undeserved gift from God. We who have spoiled what we have, what we were given, by selfishly pushing God away in our sin. We have no rightful claim to any of the good things that he has for us. And Bartimaeus knows that. And so he cries out for mercy. But of course he could not be appealing to a kinder, more compassionate, more merciful heart. Mercy is exactly what God loves to display when you and I come to him recognizing the true state of things and acknowledging our real need for him, it stops him in his tracks. That's exactly what happens, isn't it? In verse 49, we read, Jesus stopped. Can you imagine Bartimaeus reading those glorious two words in this account for the rest of his life? Jesus stopped for me. And then Jesus asks him exactly the same question he asked the disciples. What do you want me to do for you? And in verse 51, the blind man says, Rabbi, I want to see. It's not the arrogant demand of James and John, but a humble request for restoration. The very thing that Jesus loves to do. But it is also a bold request. I mean, here's a man who has lost his sight. Who knows how long he's been blind for? Presumably every doctor has said to him, there's nothing more we can do for you. And so what we have here is Bartimaeus asking Jesus for a miracle. And Jesus acknowledges his faith. And he says, go, your faith has healed you. And where do you suppose Bartimaeus would go? He's been told to go. Surely he wants to go and show his family and friends what has happened. Surely he wants to go and get, get on with a new life. 
But the last line of our passage says, immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. See, I think we are meant to see discipleship here in its purest form. From start to finish, Bartimaeus has shown us what it looks like to follow Jesus. He's recognized Jesus for who he is. He's appealed to Jesus for mercy. He has humbly and boldly asked for restoration. And then he has followed Jesus along the road, a road that calls for other-centered, sacrificial servants. And I wonder, just as I close, I wonder, as you and I look back over those two encounters, which camp is it that you have been living in? Which camp do you feel more comfortable in? The disciples' camp, which urges you to keep on lobbying God for your own deserved promotion? Or the camp that admits your great need for mercy, that you've got nothing to bring, you deserve nothing from him? The camp that encourages us to recognize Jesus as the king who loves to dispense mercy, in fact, who came into the world for that very reason, as a servant, to give up his life as a ransom so that you and I might be set free to, from sin, to follow in his footsteps, even when that road gets incredibly hard. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the um, wonderful truth here the truth of the Son of Man who came into the world, not lording it over us, not pushing us down like worldly leaders do, but he came to serve. He came lowlier than us to serve us, and he did it in the most extreme, radical way. Thank you for the loving act of the cross. Father, please would you help our hearts to overflow with joy and thankfulness at that amazing truth. And I pray that it would be the fuel we need to live lives of service. Please would you change our mindset and help us to embrace this life that Jesus has given us the perfect example of. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.